if you would open up or uh, pull out your phones and, and flip over to Judges um, chapter 6. And as it's, as it's been a couple of weeks, uh, just a quick reminder of, of where we are um, in Judges. Obviously, uh, Joshua has, has died, and in his place has come the series of um, tribal leaders, these chiefs, these, these judges, as they, as they call them. Um, and although they had, they had arrived into the promised land of Canaan, they had not yet driven out uh, all of the tribes that were, that were there. And so uh, most of Judges is, is dealing with interaction uh, with, those, with those different tribes. And Canaanites is kind of a, that's kind of an umbrella term. There will be lots of smaller tribes that have their own names, but they all kind of fall under that um, that umbrella. And God is going to use those groups um, to essentially discipline his people. And we'll talk about what that looks like uh, a little bit. But when they begin to rebel, um, he uses those tribes to come and oppress um, his people uh, to drive them back to repentance. And so, as I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard, uh, kind of the most popular way to describe judges is that of a, of a spiral right? It's, it's not just a circle, but things get progressively worse. But there's a cycle of disobedience, crying out to God, repentance, um, and then back to disobedience. But it does get worse and worse. So it, yeah, it's, it's fairly convenient that Owen only made it to the last of the good judges and then tells me to handle the, as he says, the R, R-rated part. We'll see if we make it there. I don't know. Um, but he did. He made it up up through um, Deborah, who is kind of considered, like we say, the last of the, of the good judges, and things are about to get worse. The trajectory downward away from the Lord is, um, is, is about to increase. It's, it's about to get worse and worse. Um, and so what we're going to do tonight is kind of walk through the first, um, you know, 32 verses of of Judges chapter 6, the calling of Gideon, kind of his first getting his, getting his feet set to do what he's going to do in delivering the people. And so what we'll do is we'll walk through it, make some observations. Uh, we, we won't read a whole lot from it just for time's sake, um, and then make a couple of larger observations about the Lord, what we learn about God, and then, of course, what can we do? How do we respond to that? And so chapter 6 opens with a little bit of, of background. So um, Deborah finishes her, uh, her leadership. There's 40 years of rest and peace. Um, and as far as circumstance goes, things are going well. Um, but what happens is we see that the people begin to do again what was evil um, in the sight of the Lord. They begin to turn away from him. And so he turns them over to the hands of the Midianites. So the Midianites live in, their, their main uh, territory is kind of south of modern-day Israel. Um, it would be, it, essentially it would be the far western border of Saudi Arabia today. And then there's that small body of water and then Egypt on the other side. Um, so that, that's where they, they typically live. But they, they would come in around um, harvest time and essentially they would wipe out all the resources of the Israelites. Um, they, it, in fact, it even calls them at one point, they were like locusts who would descend on the land and they would take everything. They would take exactly what they wanted. If you've ever seen the movie A Bug's Life, 
That is exactly what I think of, of the, of the grasshoppers coming in and they steal everything that the ants have taken part of. If you haven't, it's great. You should see it. It's old, but it's good. Old-ish, I should say. Sorry. So, um, but, but yeah, it's like that. They, they would take everything that they had worked so hard to produce. And so the people began to resort to essentially living like animals, living like nomads. They would hide in caves and dens. They, they, they weren't able to set up any kind of permanent residence because they would, they would be uh, stolen from. They would be taken. And so um, eventually that burden gets so heavy that they, they cry out to the Lord and they ask him for his help. So when they do, something important happens this time in chapter 6. They've done this before, and, and you guys probably studied that with Owen, but something different happens here. That instead of his first response being relief and sending them a judge and, and bringing them to, um, to be saved, he doesn't, that's not his first reaction. For the first time, really the only time in Judges, he sends them a prophet. And as far as we can tell, the only message of the prophet is scorn, is rebuke. He does not come with nice words. Um, he, he comes in verse, around verse 7 and, and 8, and he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so essentially this is a, you know, this is an are you kidding me? Like I have done all of these things for you. If not for me, you would still be in Egypt, you would still be in slavery and in horrific conditions. And I've given, you, I've given you one primary command, obviously more, but one primary command, that when you go to the promised land, do not fall for the gods of the people there. Do not be pulled in by their influence. And yet, what do they do? You, you don't listen. You didn't listen to me. You did that. And, and so in the, in the past, his help had come almost immediately. So when we see a change in God's method here, that, that to us signals a change a little bit in the pattern. That, that this, is, this is different. In fact, it's, it's worse. Things are worse now than they've been before. And so that, like I said, that downward spiral is going to increase in its trajectory of getting farther and farther away from God. And so then we meet Gideon. And I realize that I've, I've led us to believe that the story of Gideon is, is not going to go well. Well, it, in all reality, it's not. Like, he's going to give us hope from time to time. He's, there are going to be good parts. But essentially, Gideon does not go well and certainly does not end well. But we find him in a, in a manner that's kind of telling of his personality. Like, when we first encounter Gideon, it it kind of makes sense. If you know the rest of the story, you know how, how he acts. Where we first find him, hiding. Now, there's, there's certainly nothing really wrong with him, with him hiding. He's hiding for good purpose. He doesn't want to be seen by the Midianites. He doesn't, uh, because he's working with resources. He's working with the wheat, and he's taking what is normally done outside, where, where it's typically you would take your wheat to the threshing floor, and you would work there because the wind could take away the chaff, and it it was part of the process. Well, he's moved that indoors. 
so that he wouldn't be seen and no one would know that he had resources to be, to be taken, to be stolen, stolen there. But that, that idea of him hiding, that's a, that's a constant theme that we're going to see from him. That's, that's part of his personality and, and part of his disobedience <clears throat> at times. So he is, he's in there working, and an angel of the Lord appears and gives him a calling, calls him to be brave, that you are going to deliver the people from the hands of the Midianites. And Gideon is not going to respond well. He's going to respond in doubt. And he's, he's going to mount essentially three counterpoints to him being called. Three times he's going to push back against this call. In the first one, um, he just complains. He complains that God can't be with us. God is obviously not for us, or we couldn't possibly be in this place. Right? He, he responds fully out of anger and frustration. This was probably something he had thought about before. It, wasn't, it didn't just come to him now. He's been frustrated with God for a time that he would just lash out like this. Given the, given the timeline, he was most likely born during the time of rest. He'd probably spent some time during the peaceful time. So he knew what it was not to be oppressed and what it was to be oppressed. So that, that frustration was probably even stronger uh, in him and others who had experienced both because he, he had a good life at one time and it was removed from him. And so the, the angel responds, in, in patience and in mercy. And he says, take that frustration, take that anger, and we're going to use it. We're going to use it against the Midianites. And so what does Gideon do? He kind of changes his approach. He, he changes his, um, his counterpoints. Now he begins to, he goes from criticizing essentially the character of God, and he begins to criticize himself, right? He says, I'm, I'm too weak. Who, who am I? I? I can't be the one to lead out, <clears throat> excuse me, to lead out in this. Um, and what that shows is that he doesn't yet understand really who he's talking to. It has not yet clicked in his mind, I'm talking to God. I'm, I'm, I'm face to face with the Lord. Um, because because that, would, that would bring about humility. We would all respond in humility if we knew we were in that circumstance. We would say something like, I don't have the ability but, but since you're God and you're here, I, I know it can be done, and I will, I will go in obedience. This is not humility. This is, this is cowardice. This is, I don't want to do it. This is, I'm scared. I don't want to do that. Here is, here is my um, excuse. And so the angel, again, is extremely patient, and he clarifies. He says, you're not going to be alone. I will be with you. He gives him he gives him really detailed assurance. You're going to not, not only win in this effort, but you're going to have overwhelming victory over the Midianites. You're going to fight them as if they've got one guy. The, the, the locusts that you've seen, that overwhelming force that you've seen, they're going to be as strong as one man when I'm with you. And so he, he gives them that assurance. And so Gideon's kind of in a bind, right? He can't say no this is, this is God asking him to do something, um, but he doesn't want to say yes. What's being asked of him is difficult. It's scary. And so he, he mounts kind of one final opposition. He's going to make him prove that this is God. 
he tells the Lord that he needs a sign. And in an act of unbelievable mercy and grace, it's given to him. He goes inside and he gets, he gets a plate of food and he, he brings it out to feed the man. And instead of eating it, he places it on a rock and, and calls flames out of the rock to burn it up as a sacrifice. And then he disappears. Almost as if to say, okay, <clears throat> you've been given three assurances You're not getting any more, right? He just disappears, but he makes it clear to Gideon there's power here. There's power in this calling, and Gideon finally gets it. it, it Finally, the light bulb goes on, and I think of the the classic kind of sitcom scenario where uh, somebody thinks that that they're looking at somebody who's in a disguise, Right? They think the beard is fake or the wig is fake or something like that. And they, what do they do? They go up and they, they try to pull it off and expose them and it doesn't go anywhere. Right? It's, it's real and then they realize how, how stupid they look for, for doing that in front of this person. I, I feel like that's where Gideon is. He, this whole time he keeps questioning, questioning, and all of a sudden, oh, you really are God. You really do have this, this power. And rightfully so, he begins to panic. Right, because not only did he misidentify this this man as God, he was he was kind of a punk, right? He he, can you imagine? Can you imagine criticizing the goodness of God to his face, and then realizing that's what you've done later on? We would all we would all kind of start to freak out, and that's that's what he does. But but God is merciful again, and he sends him a message. He says, "I won't. I'm not going to kill you." Maybe I should, but I, I'm not going to, right? I'm going to let you live. And so he, he has this, this calling. And <clears throat> this should strike some recollection um, in us from other places in Scripture. It's actually kind of familiar, specifically of several, but specifically of Moses. That this, there's a lot of parallels between the calling of Moses. Um, Moses is also, you know, he's kind of hiding. He's working for his for his father-in-law, <coughs> excuse me, um, he's he's hiding. He's he encounters an angel, much like um, much like Gideon does. They're both given authority. God says, "I will send you. I am the one who's sending you. You have my authority to go and do these things." Um, both of them give excuses centered around their own ability. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. You know, I can't speak well. Things like that. Um, and they both have that same encouragement, I'm with you. And they're, bo- they're both given a sign of fire. Uh, one is asked for and one is not asked for, but they're both given that sign of fire as, as a sign of affirmation, that I am choosing you, I am in favor of you to go and to do these things. And I only point this out because um, of just, just of how cool it is to study God and to see his methods and to see how he works. That when we read different books, especially in the Old Testament that are written, you know, who knows how many years apart from one another, by different authors, he has the same methods. Why? Because he's the same God. He continually works in similar ways. And so it's just a, a very small glimpse of the beauty of God and what it is to, to study his word. And so I didn't want to skip over that. So we move forward, and, and Gideon is now on board. He knows that he has been dealing with God. And, and now what's the very first thing that's going to happen? That night, okay, he doesn't have any time to process this information. That night there is some work to be done. 
he asks for some action. And what is one of the primary concerns, uh, one of the primary commands that God has for his people? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's, it's recurring. It's not just Old Testament. It's New Testament. Whether it's, whether it's a, a foreign god, an idol, or whether it's things that we have just made into idols in our hearts, one of his primary concerns is that we remove and we not have any idols. And so he has a very simple request. It's not an easy request, but it is simple. That he had built an altar to the Lord, getting had built one, and that was good. But next he has to tear down the altar of Baal that, was in his, that his father had built. That has some complications. That, it, that even though Gideon had been assured that he wasn't going to die, um, he had been given the sign of God's approval, he was still scared of what was going to happen. He was scared of what his family, namely his father, was going to think and what the town and the community were going to think. And so kind of in true Gideon fashion, he does it, but he does it at night, right? His, his hope is that no one sees him do it, that, that no one finds out that he was the one. And, and for us, we, we kind of want to make fun of that and, and scoff at that a little bit, but consider his situation. Like, he, he wasn't called to go to another town where nobody knew him and tear down one of their idols and then leave, right? He, he wasn't called to go to someone else's house he was called to tear down the altar that his father had built. I mean, imagine opposing someone so close to you as your parents on something so foundational. Not, not even political beliefs, not farming methods. Oppose him on his religious beliefs, what would be the most important thing. Everyone would know that Gideon had just very publicly and strongly spoken out against his father. That would have been embarrassing, to say the least, to his father and to his family. And, and considering what it was like in their time, the, I mean, the father was not only the head of the household, but they were in elevated status over everyone in the home. They were the boss, right? And so for one of your, one of your sons, one of your children to rebel against you in such a way, um, culturally would have had a lot of shame with it. This is, honor was very important in this, in this culture. There, that would have been a very big deal. One, one commentator put it, said to go against your father was to risk disinheritance, shame, and even death. So we can, we can understand him not wanting to go up in the light of day, hitch up the bulls, and, and tear this idol down. And, and like we said, to his credit, he does do it. He tears it down. But then, of course, what happens? The town wakes up. They're going to, they're going to find out something happened. Um, th- that, that is clear. And they're out for blood. They want to know who did this. Uh, it angers them. And somehow they find out that it was Gideon. And like we said, the, the father being the most important, they go to his father. They seek him out and say, bring him out here. And they don't, they don't even pretend. Like this is not... This is not so we can have a discussion with him or a stern talking to or even a trial. This is an execution. They're clear. Bring him out here. We're going to kill him for what he's done. This is an incredibly telling picture of where the Israelites were at this time. 
These are God's chosen people who had been delivered time and time again. They're so angry that they are banging down his door to find the one who disrespected their idol. That's, that's where they are. So when we say, like when, when Scripture says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're not talking about them being just a little bit loose with the law, which is bad as well. We're not talking about making a mistake and eating unclean food. We're talking as bad as it gets. They're as lost as you can be. It does not even occur to them that they, that they feel so strongly for their foreign God, for their idol to Baal, that they would be willing to kill someone for tearing it down. One, one author puts it this way. He says, the canonization of Israelite society appears complete. They had totally been morphed into the mindset of the people around they were living. They, they are following the gods that they are, and they have forgotten the God who brought them there. And yet, what is this story ultimately about? God's plan to have mercy on them and deliver them all the same. So they come to Joash. They come to the father of Gideon, who easily could have turned his son over. But what does he do? He stands up for him, right? And rather boldly, he says, Baal can fight his battles for himself. If he's, if he's really a god, he can take care of it. Um, he doesn't need you to do his work for him. And really, that's, that's more of a challenge than expecting Baal to actually do anything. And that, should, that story should ring a bell for us as well. A father who had every right to turn his child over to be killed, and yet, what? He stands in the way. He stands up for him. He spares him. Right? A very, a very small and brief picture of the gospel that we see Gideon being on the receiving end of grace from his father, undeserved grace from his father. So Gideon is given this nickname, Jeroboam, meaning to let Baal contend. It's, essentially, it's a name of mockery against, against Baal that, that basically says he can't do anything. He couldn't do anything even against Gideon. Gideon did, did the most disrespectful thing that you can do. Nothing happened. So so what, what's more important as they begin to use that name for him later on, especially in seven, chapter 7 and 8, uh, Gideon becomes this living reminder that Baal has really nothing to stand on in the face of the God of the Israelites, the God of Gideon. And so that's, that's the story I, I wanted us to cover tonight. We'll, we'll move forward in the next few weeks. Um, and what I want us to do is first ask the question, what what, of course, does this tell us? What can we learn from this? Why do we even care? Is this just a neat story about how Gideon was, was called uh, to his action? Or does it tell us more? And I, I mentioned here uh, some time back the last time I got a chance to be in here that the most important question, uh, the single most important thing that you can ask about a passage of Scripture is what it says, what does this tell me about God? What does this teach me about who God is. And so that's, that's what I want to move into in the theology section is what is this teaching us about God? And we'll get to the part where we talk about how it relates to us, but let's first just see what can we learn about him in this. And there are probably lots of things. These are just a few um, that I've, I, I thought of. 
<clears throat> the first thing that we see, just, just chronologically in this story, um, is that God will discipline his people. It's an important thing to understand that God is active in disciplining his people. Look at verse 1. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. He's active in that process. That, that was not a passive thing. God chose to give them into the hands of Midian. He caused it, and he caused it against his own people. This is not like the book of Joshua, where typically it's the Canaanites that are on the sharp end of the stick. Now it's the Israelites. They're the ones who get it. But with, with God, there is always a reason. That's why we use the word discipline instead of punishment. You could use both, and there, there's justification for both. But sometimes I think discipline helps us understand a little bit better that with God, there is a purpose for these hardships. There's a purpose for these circumstances that he puts his people through. And here's a few passages. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Job 5.17, one of his friends says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And this is not, a, this is not an Old Testament, New Testament thing. Obviously, we always have the tendency to think Old Testament God is where he does all the punishment and the mean things. And New Testament, all that stuff goes away. It's not true. Like Things happen in the New Testament as well. Hebrews 12, this is a longer passage, Verses 7 through 11 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a, a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is an important part of our relationship with God. Right? And, and hear what I'm saying, or, or maybe rather hear, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all hardship in life is directly tied to your sin. Right? It, I'm, I'm in no way. There are people who would, who would claim that, would look at somebody who lost their job or had an illness, and they would say, that's because you sinned here. Right? That is not what I'm saying. That, that, is, that is definitely not, because we know the opposite is also not true. Success and health are no indications of faithfulness to the Lord. So, so that's not at all what I'm saying. But what, I'm, what I am saying is that at times, he does use hardships to discipline us, to show us something. And, and that is a good attribute of God. That is something we should appreciate about him. That's, that's not the side of God that we just put up with because that's the way he is. No, it's something we are grateful for. I've, I've counseled with guys that have been caught in their sinfulness, and they are grateful for being caught, right? And that, that seems so odd because it, because it costs them, right? It costs them struggles in their relationships, in their marriage. It costs them shame when confessing it to 
other believers, they were, they were embarrassed, but they were grateful. Why? Because they were brought to repentance through that discipline. It is that, that discipline that made them realize their disobedience to the Lord and their need to repent. After the, after the Israelites have been punished for so long, what do they do? They cry out to God. They, they finally realize the problem. So discipline has an illuminating effect on our sin. It drives and encourages us to come back to repentance. So we are grateful that God disciplines his people. The second, the second thing that we see about God is that he wants all the glory. And what I mean by that in, in this uh, is that sometimes it's easy to think about the Old Testament as this collection of stories about heroes of the faith that are going out and boldly doing the will of God. In, in all reality, that's, that's not an accurate description of the Old Testament. What really happens is God takes these broken, spine, you know, spineless, selfish, you know, what we would say worthless people, and enables them to do his will for the purpose of his glory. And there's an important reason for that. And, and that reason, this, this actually kind of illustrates why I, why I always say it's important to ask first, what does this teach us about God? before asking what does this teach us about ourselves? Because you might read the story of Gideon and, and how it goes, and you see that God uses him to deliver the people. And you might say, you know what? If God can use Gideon, someone as bad as Gideon, uh, someone as weak as Gideon, then he can also use me. And, and that, that's true. That would not, not, that would not be an untrue uh, thing to, to glean from this text. But if it's not seen through the filter of the most important reason God used Gideon was so that Gideon would not get the credit, but so that he would, right? Uh, the, the story of David and Goliath is not about how God and David defeated the Philistines, right? It's, it's the story of how God defeated the Philistines. The reason he used David is because no one was going to look at little David and think he did that by himself. No, God did it through him. Gideon says he is the weakest guy in the weakest clan. Why would God possibly use him? It's so that thousands of years later, when people are sitting in a room studying this passage, we would not conclude, man, Gideon and his 300 men, they were awesome. No, it's so that we would conclude God is awesome. That's why he uses these people. It's because he wants all the glory. And then thirdly, the final attribute of God that we see here is that God is a jealous God. And that's, that's tied together with that last point. Um, but there's an important distinction to, to know that with that, with him wanting all the glory, God does not share his glory with anyone, nor should he. Right? He requires that all other idols be removed before we can begin to serve him accurately. Um, I think most of us in here are, are past high school. We're, we're past the high school dating phase. But when I was in high school and, and, I, and I dated, the thing to do, I don't know if you guys remember this, or I don't know if anybody else did this, maybe it was just Duncan, but the thing to do, you remember those little uh, wallet-sized pictures that you would get from the yearbook or whatever, and you'd pass them out to everybody? Well, the thing to do in my town was you took those and you put it on your uh, dashboard, 
you'd tape it up, I guess, in front of the speedometer. I don't know, because so that didn't really matter. Uh, yeah, you'd slide it in there. You'd, you'd put it up there. I, I don't know. I guess so you could see them all the time. Whatever reason we had for doing that, we, we did that. And, and then, of course, years later, I saw the error of my ways, and the Lord brought me to Ginny Ann. I met my wife. We committed to one another. But, but imagine, imagine if I did all of that. I, I publicly pronounced love and devotion to my wife for the rest of my life, but I still left one of those pictures of, of one of my old girlfriends up in my car. How do you think Ginny Ann, you think this is a good idea, he's for it. No, it's a bad idea, right? Ginny Ann would not respond well to that. Rightfully so. No one in this room would blame her, right? We all see that as a righteous jealousy because what it would mean is even if 95% of my attention was towards my wife, that there was still something else pulling my affections away from her. It is the same way with God. He doesn't share. They, don't, they can't coexist. Idols in our heart cannot coexist. They must be removed. Joshua had even told them a few chapters earlier. He said, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. God cannot coexist with idols in our hearts. We can't have both. He's not jealous in this immature or selfish way, but in a holy, in a righteous way. So now that we know who God is, we've learned these things about him, let's spend just, our, just a brief few minutes uh, summarizing what do we do? How do we respond? And, and when I printed out the, uh, the handouts tonight and read, this, read the last two uh, points, I, I kind of laughed because Man, it seems so simple. <laughs> like I put two of the hardest things it is to do in the Christian walk. And when you put them in a short sentence like that, it seems very simple and very easy. And these are not simple and easy things to do. They're things that we will wrestle with for, for the entirety of our lives. So let's, let's look at them. The first one is to consider our lack of faith. What I mean by that is think about your faith. Not, not your religion, your faith. The level of your faith that you, that you work with that um, for, for Gideon, he had a serious lack of, right? He had what we'd probably call a low level of faith. In the midst of miracles, he's still struggling to be bold for the Lord. He argues with the Lord. He makes excuses. He only obeys in the dark of night when people can't see him. Well, we, we do the same thing. And what this boils down to is one really simple question do we believe that the trade-off is worth it? Right? So for Gideon, the, the question is, is obeying God, is tearing down the altar of Baal, is that worth all the stuff that's going to come with it? Because let's, let's assume he's okay and he, he believes God. Let's assume that he believes God that he won't die. He believes God that he is going to deliver them from the Midianites. All the same, he's still going to have cost. He's still going to have to do things that are difficult that cost him. Well, his actions are an indicator of the level of his faith. And we, we throw this idea of faith out there very easily. It's not, a, it's not an easy-to-understand concept. It's not something that's simple to be measured. Um, but what Scripture does give us uh, is some idea of how to, how, to, how to find evidence of it. 
right? Ephesians chapter 2 addresses this. It tells us a couple of things about it, that faith is a, a gift, right? It, it comes from God. It's not something that we can earn. We can put all our hard efforts together. We could still necessarily not have faith. It's a gift from God. And it's not just an emotion or a, a feeling. In fact, faith is most evidenced in what we do when we don't have that emotion, when we don't have that feeling of closeness to God, right? When we don't have a spiritual high, what do we do then? That's evidence of what faith is. And so we are to pursue God and in doing so, find the evidence of our faith, right? The more we act in faithfulness, the more we find evidence of our faith. And that faith is a gift from God, remembering always that it's a gift. And so consider Consider where you are. Consider Gideon and where you would be in his shoes. And consider what you can do to find that evidence of faith and thus be encouraged to have more. And then secondly, we must remove the idols. This is, this is what is seemingly the most painful part because it, it requires removing things that have become a part of us. Right? These, these people were so angry just to see the altar torn down that they were, they were spurned into violent action. God does everything that he does for his own glory. And so the Israelites had to be prepared spiritually for the deliverance that he was going to give them. The real problem in the Israelites' life was not the Midianites. It was Baal. And, it was, and other idols like him. It was their disobedience. That was the problem, not, not the Midianites. And what that meant for them was getting rid of the old things in their heart so that it could be replaced only by him. One commentator used the example that if, if your child is outside playing and they, they fall off the bike or they, they fall off the playset and, and skin up their knee and they come in and they want, they want comfort from you, they're crying. Um, what's the first thing that you do? It's, you don't just grab a Band-Aid and slap it on there and say, okay, go, go back outside now and, and play. Right? What do you do? No, you, you clean it. You clean the wound. And that's, that hurts, and that's painful, and that's no fun. And you have to spray the hydrogen peroxide on there, and it stings. Right? But that is what makes the wound truly clean. Otherwise, it would get infected. It would become worse than the, than the original injury itself. God could have just delivered Israel from the Midianites without putting any emphasis on removing idols. But that would be the equivalent of him just slapping a Band-Aid on. But we do this all the time in our lives. We, we try to grow and progress in our walk with the Lord by addition only. Right? We add time in the Word. We add uh, involvement at church. And those are necessary parts of the process, but if we're not also at the same time getting rid of those things that the darkness of our heart wants to, wants to hold on to, wants to keep going, we, we can't grow. You cannot, absolutely cannot have it both ways. God is incompatible with the idols in your life. They don't mix. So we will never see true growth if we don't start with cleaning out the idols. And that is going to require work not just in getting rid of them, but even in identifying them, right? We live in a time when it's odd to spend time in reflection and in thought. 
We, we don't spend time just thinking. When I get in the car and the radio's not on, I'm uncomfortable immediately. Like I have to get something to entertain me, engage my mind. I don't spend enough time practicing thought, reflection on my life. Because if I don't do that, I might not realize the idols that are in my life. It's clear that the people of Israel had not realized how far they had drifted from God. Baal, who probably started out as just this little side project, you know, fun thing they toyed around with, had now become ultimate in their life. And because they didn't reflect on their hearts, they didn't ask God to reveal the sin in them, they, they didn't even realize where they had gotten. We could all rattle off some idol that we've allowed in our lives, but realize there could be more that we don't even know about. David Platt calls these blind spots, right, where like Christians in the past, he pulls out some examples of where, where the church ignored things like slavery, uh, ignored things like racism. What blind spots do we have? What are we trying to hold on to while also pursuing God? What's keeping us from that? And then once you identify it, of course, being willing to get rid of it, sacrificing your job, your family, uh, your reputation, whatever it would take to pursue God faithfully. Are we willing to go through that pain, to pay that cost? Do we believe in that trade-off? And so that's, that's my encouragement to you tonight is, is these two things. Consider your faith. Do you truly believe that the trade-off is worth it? Intimacy with God, pursuing Him, ultimately His glory, is that worth the cost that it will take when you remove the idols from your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of, of Gideon and um, most importantly, the story of you. We thank you that you would be willing um, to discipline us and to teach us and to display the idols in our hearts so that we might repent and know you. God, I thank you that in this room there are people who want to grow closer to you and are willing to do what it takes. I pray that you would give us that courage to obey you in the light of day. I pray that we would encourage one another in that pursuit, that we would be a part of a family that encourages us, that spurs us on towards love and good deeds. God, I thank you for the very reason that we can have any hope, any faith. It's not because of us, but because of what your Son has done for us on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.